Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Call the confession today is from Proverbs chapter 30, verse 10. Do not slander a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be held guilty. Slander, by its very definition, is an untruth. It's a lie, a falsehood, a misrepresentation. It's a tool of the faithless. Lies are told in many ways, motivated by many evils. But slander is a particular kind of false statement that is told to misrepresent and damage someone else's reputation. It is generally the goal of gaining an advantage over someone by planting a seed of doubt or suspicion about the other person, about his abilities, his honesty, or some other quality. It plants a seed of uncertainty, and it's really hard to recover, even if that lie teller tries to retrieve and undo his message. Slander is often delivered privately, but sometimes it's shouted from the rooftops of social media, the newsprint, or talk radio, or even at a Bible study. However it's delivered, it, its goal is to gain some advantage by falsely representing the person that's been slandered. The wise man conveying this proverb warns the reader to consider the fact that slander is really a two-edged sword. It not only damages the victim of the false statement, but it's just as powerful should it spring back and curse the teller of the lie. So don't slander, child of God. Trust your father for all that you need. Employing slander reveals a place in your life where you're not trusting God, trusting the Lord, resting in him for, for the thing, for the position or situation that you desire. Instead, rest in him to guide your situation and circumstances rather than try to attain it through your own slanderous means. If you cannot see through your current situation or circumstance, trust him, wait on him, be patient. Don't be tempted to slander someone else simply to get immediate advantage. If what you are seeking is good and useful in your Heavenly Father's plan for you in his kingdom, then he will not withhold anything good from his child who asks. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. Please kneel where you are if you will. As we approach God's word, uh, please join me in a word of prayer to ask God's blessing on our time. Together, Heavenly Father, you are a gracious God. We are reminded time and again of your faithfulness, of your abundant grace and mercy, and of your salvation that is offered through your Son, Jesus Christ. So we come to the mountain again. To hear you speak, it is a fearful thing, for you are the Almighty God. Yet it is a glorious thing, for you are a gracious God. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us your spirit, 
that we might have ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to receive. May we be well prepared for whatever part we are in this growth, whether it's new seed or growing or harvest. Thank you that you will faithfully bring about your work. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So here we are, the fifth Sunday of Lent, right? We're nearing the end of the Lenten season. And for much of the world, historically, traditionally, it has been a time of, of recognize, recognizing this, time of tradition. For, for many, right, as they do this, right, the Lenten season, it's, it's really a time of preparation for Friday fish fries and feasts, right? We have our Fat Tuesday as we enter into it. We spend the whole 40 days throughout it preparing for all the foods that we can eat at the end. And along the way, we tend to give up something just as a kind of a reminder that we should be repentant. But I believe there are those, right, the 40 days. Why do we have the 40 days? It reminds us of the, the temptation that Christ took. He went out for 40 days. And he himself was hungry. Was hungry. He was thirsty. He was tired. He ex- experienced great temptation. And so for us, likewise, it should be this time of reflection as it leads up to the Patrick. We, right, we've, come, we've come through the season of Advent, as we're awaiting the arrival of the Christ child, that season of epiphany with great expectation that we can worship Him, and then the season after epiphany, right, as, the, as this light has come into the world, what does light do? It removes darkness and exposes truth and reality and so as we've come out of the season of epiphany our reality has been exposed this is who you really are when you understand that the Christ has come and so this season of Lent is a time of reflection as that as the light of the gospel as the light of the world shines upon us We have to deal with, whoa, I did not realize things were that bad. I really didn't realize that I was such an awful person. Because we don't believe that. We don't believe how bad we are. But if we go back and really read the story of the flood, we're reminded that long ago of what it's really like every day for every one of us. It was true before the flood and it was true after the flood. God makes a statement that characterizes humanity, right? Why did God tell Noah that he destroyed, he was going to destroy the world? Because every inclination of man's heart was only evil continually. And we're reminded of that Paul by Paul in Romans that no one seeks after God. No one, none, none. There's no one that wants to follow God. Right? This is so contrary to the Greek mind that was being dealt with in the day. 
right? What, what's, what's the Greek mind or the, even the progressive mind that keeps that alive is that there's a spark of goodness. There's a clean slate within each human being. And if we can just ask the right questions or find the right motivation, that will rise to the top and we will see that good person come out that is there naturally. But God saves Noah and his family out of grace. And as they walk out of the the ark and offer the sacrifice, immediately Noah sins. And Paul and God makes a promise and says, with this bow that I set in the sky, I will covenant again that I will no longer destroy the world by a flood, even though every inclination of man's heart is only evil continually. Man's condition did not change because God destroyed almost everybody in the earth. That is our condition. We have our fancy term for it. What's our fancy theological term? We are totally depraved. That's what we are as we're born. There's no spark of goodness. There's no clean slate. We are not sinners because we are sin. We sin because we are sinners. And that is God's truth. And so in this time of Lent, in this season of reflection, God's light through His Son has been poured out. And we understand the reality of our condition. We understand our total depravity. And that should, for those, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, to those who God is calling, it causes them to say, woe is me, where am I? Please save me. And to those that God is not saving, it says, ah, this is crazy talk. This is unkind. And so we reflect, understand our condition, and we seek out God's forgiveness. And behold, Good Friday and Easter come. And we rejoice because of God's salvation. He has faithfully provided a Savior. He has reached down and pulled us out of our hopeless, helpless estate. And we can rejoice and have hope in Him. And so as we come to this passage in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verses 5 through 10, the author, who some might argue is Paul, but there's many arguments against why it isn't Paul. Mainly, Paul's usually saying it's him all through his, the whole writing, and there's no mention of Paul here at all. Paul's constantly using examples of his life, and there's none in here at all. Uh, but uh, we're not here today to determine whether or not the Apostle Paul wrote this passage, but to hear as God speaks through the author. And in this passage, the author to the Hebrew, the author of the letter to the Hebrews, is reminding them of who Christ is. Who is the Savior? What joy can we have what is it why is it so certain that he is the savior and starting with first five he says so also christ did not glorify himself to become high priest but it was he who said to him you are my son today i have begotten you 
As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now generally, you don't hear a lot of sermons out of Hebrew, nor Revelation, because those are hard books to understand. And you read that patient, uh, passage, it's like, oh man, what was he just saying? He pulled something from here, he pulled something from there, he made a reference to that. It's like, eh, I, I can't understand that. And that's, that's true. So that's why it's important for us to, to kind of look at the context and get some background to what's going on here. And it really comes out of the passage that we read there in the first four verses. The author is, try, is making a connection for the Hebrew recipient, the Hebrew audience, for them to understand why Jesus Christ is the promised one. Right back in chapter 4, he's talked about this great benefit, this great high priest that uh, we, we have. Right, We have a high priest who sympathizes with us so we can boldly approach the throne of God. That You don't boldly approach the throne of God. Right? You go, you go in great humility. You go in, right? I think of Isaiah chapter 6, right? What happens when he sees God? He says, woe is me. They fall down as dead. Because no one can see God and live. Coming into the presence of God brings death. That's why we had the veil between the, in the tabernacle or in the temple, right? Only the High priest could go there once a year. And we really hope things worked out well because if it didn't, he was dead. So we put bells on his tunic and we put a rope around his foot just in case it didn't work out. We could bring him back because nobody was going to go in there and get him. It was a fearful thing to go to the throne of God. But we have this high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. And we can boldly go to the throne of grace. Whoa! Mind blown for the Jewish person, for the Hebrew. This is a whole new mindset. There's changes going on in Jerusalem, right? We have the Jerusalem council that's happened. We've had to discuss, is the Old Testament sacrifice law still in place? Things are changing. It's still necessary to be circumcised. There's a lot. And here we have the high priest. And with him, all, all can approach the throne of God. And in verses 1 through 4, he, the author lays out the characteristics or the qualifications that a traditional Old Testament priest must meet in order to be accepted as a priest, especially as high priest. And he, he developed five of those ideas. 
verse 1, we pick up three of them. If you look at chapter 5, verse 1, every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. Do you see the three? There's three of them were there. Number one, he has to be a man. He looked like a man. Right? He has to be chosen out of the congregation, out of the men that are available. So the high priest has to be a man. Secondly, what does it say? He is appointed for men. So it's not some personal vocation. It's not some personal um, career move. But it's to minister to the congregation. To minister to the people. That's the role of the priest. And thirdly there at the end of verse 1. That he may offer both gifts and sacrifices of sins. His role, his ministry is that one, that of offering gifts and sacrifices. So he has to be a man from the select group. And we know for the Israelites that was the tribe of Levi. But that's going to expand. Now it's in generally must be a man. Must be taken from the congregation of men, the assembly of men, and must offer gifts and sacrifices. So that's the first three. Verse, uh, the first three ideas. First two tells us the next thing. The third um, qualification is that the um, high priest will be able to have compassion because he himself is subject. To weakness. He's a real human being that suffers affliction, suffers temptation, and suffers. So that he will minister better to those he is serving. And then verse 4 tells us our fifth one. Is that this is, uh, this is not something that I uh, take a career assessment on and say, Ooh, I am going to be a priest. But... It's one who is called by God. Chosen by God. So the, five, so the five qualifications, the five characteristics that are traditionally set up for an Old Testament priest is to be a human being and to serve other humans, other people through the offering of gifts and sacrifices. They should demonstrate that they have a real human heart. They don't have some calloused will or some stone emotions that they never, you know, the, uh, that, that very uh, st- stone, I, you know, I just don't experience anything kind of thing. There's, there's, a, there's a sense of having emotion, experiencing suffering. I, I, would, I would also argue, on the other hand, they're not so emotionally over the hill that they're never... <laughs> they're never solid in their thinking. And then finally, um, they were chosen or approved by God. So these are the, he, he said, he's claimed that Christ is the high priest, this great, compassionate, sympathetic high priest to whom we can approach the throne of God. He's established the five criteria in the first four verses here of what qualifies someone to be a high priest. And now... We're going to see in these next set of verses how Christ meets each of those qualifications. We're going to, he's just going to go through and delineate that. So in verse 5, he's going to quote out of Psalm 2. And he's going to say, Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. Well, right there, right off the bat, he deals with the last one. 
right? What was our fifth? What was our fifth characteristic of a high priest? It wasn't something that I seek for myself, but it was approved or appointed by God. He, he begins to address that right there. Christ did not sit around saying, I'm going to be the high priest. That was not his mindset. That was not his attitude. In fact, Philippians 2 reminds us what the mind of Christ is. What is the mind of Christ? Did not consider his position in glory to be something to take lightly, but was willing to take on the form of his creation. And to serve that creation, to submit himself to that creation. What does he what does Christ teach? And we read it earlier today. What does he teach about living in the kingdom of God? What is the mindset of one who is going to be great in God's kingdom? It must be one who is the servant of others. There must be a servant mind. They must be willing to be a slave. Right? We really struggle, and well, we should. You know, praise God that we don't have. The, the present day issue of slavery like we have historically. But it was a part of life for millennia. And we have to understand that that's the picture that God has given for how we should live as Christians. It's the picture of how He has saved us. We have been redeemed, set free, not to live however we want to, but to serve our master God alone. And that was the mind of Christ. He came as the creator of everything, as the sustainer of all creation, as the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient creator and took on the form of his creation. That's, if we just consider that thought, how amazing that is. Think of even the best project, the best craft that you've made. Would you really want to become that? You've built a nightstand. You've prepared a wonderful meal. You've painted a beautiful picture. You've built something. You've created something. And there it stands and you step back and say, Oh, isn't that wonderful? And everybody looks at us and say, oh, what a good work that is. So the next thing we say is, hey, let's become that. I, I don't hear that often. I don't hear people standing back and saying, that is such a beautiful painting. I want to become it. No, we say, I want to make another one. Or I'm hoping someone will buy this. Right? We don't want to become our creation. We want to enjoy our creation. We want others to enjoy our creation. But Christ became like he became his creation. And not only did he become his creation, what does Philippians go on to say? He submitted himself to that creation, even to the point of death. And so as we see that mind of Christ that fits that chosen by God... We also see that he's one that is a man, a human, right? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. He is qualified to be the high priest because he is a human being. 
Now that doesn't make him automatically a priest, but it makes him eligible to be a priest because he has taken on humanity. And this word only begotten or begotten, you are my only son, today I've begotten you, out of Psalm 2. Now if we remember reading Psalm 2, that's the Messianic Psalm, right? And that's the one we use to really establish that Christ is the Messiah King. And he's, he's a king who is rightly to be on the throne. And we have to be reminded of the Israelites and their process of gaining a king. First of all, the reason they wanted a king to begin with was because they wanted to be like everybody else. And so in their effort to be like everybody else, they used that criteria to select their first king, right? Well, he's got to be tall. He's got to be good looking. He's got to be brawny and strong. He's got to be a good human being. Those are characteristics. And so they chose Saul. And God said, well, that's really not the criteria that we're going to have for king. And so future kings were sought from lineage and according to God's criteria, especially David. Think of David. He didn't quite measure up to all of those human qualities, right? We looked at all the sons of, of um, oh, who's David's dad? Just when you need it, you don't have it, right? Jesse, Jesse thank you. Uh, all the sons of Jesse. And one at this one, no, that's not him. That's not him. That, well, if none of these can be king, who can be? Well, we happen to have one more. He's out in the field. He's a little, little on the runt, runt side. Doesn't really do what he's told. Kind of a little loose cannon out there. You know, he's ruddy. <laughs> that poor kid could not tan. He was red. He was a lobster, man. He, he was red. He tried oils. He tried tanning sprays. It, he was out in the sun all the time. Was just, he was, don't touch me. It hurts. Apparently, a lion and a bear tried to touch him because he took him down. He was a strong young kid, but he did not look like a king. But that was, that was God's king, right? What was his great characteristic? He believed God. He had faith in God. In fact, he, we learned, right? He could go when he's going to take food to his brothers and he sees the whole Israelite army in fear against the Philistines because some nine-foot guy was standing over there. Right? How often do we see giants and retract in fear? Oh, what are we going to do? They have a nine-foot guy. And David said, nine-foot guy. I could throw stones that high. What's the big deal? God, God can make this happen. And goes and shows what you do in the name of God. And so Psalm 2 establishes this kingship, this humanity, not just a normal human, but a particular human. And the uh, Greek word monogamous is only begotten. Right? So he's, this is the, it's not just the begotten. It's not the, just the ganes, right? Adam begot uh, Cain and Abel. Uh, Abraham begot Ishmael and Isaac. Right? It's not just the begotten, but it's the monogamous, the only begotten. And we recall, as 
we've reflected on the Apostles' Creed this morning. There's a similar creed that we read that's a little bit more complicated because in the early 4th century, 325, the Council of Nicaea was called to discuss who is Christ and what was it in particular they wanted to know about Christ. What was his nature? Because there's this guy named Arius running around saying, yeah, Christ is human, but he is not God. He is not divine. And so the early church fathers met together, and from that, they discussed this and came out with the Nicene Creed and said, he is the only begotten of the Father, of one substance with the Father. So he is uniquely man, human, and God. And that's why Psalm 2 is important because historically the kings, the heroes, the pharaohs were always seen as God kings. Right? God man. Man gods. That's why they could rule. That's why there was such great respect for kings. They were, almost, they were seen as gods in themselves. Not necessarily a right perspective but certainly a a precursor to the mindset that we have in Christ. He is the one and only God-man. And so he meets meets that criteria to be a human, to be fully God, yet fully human as the only begotten Son of God. And verse 6 melds that or connects that to the priesthood by bringing in that Old Testament example of the king priest. Right? He's going to be appointed by God. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Right? We have to go all the way back to uh, Genesis 14 and remember who Melchizedek is, right? He was the king of Salem which becomes Jerusalem later on. He's the king of that region in, uh, in, in modern-day South, South Israel, South Palestine. And Abraham, remember, has to go out and rescue his, his nephew Lot because he's been taken away by a neighboring king. And Abraham gathers together his 380-some-odd men and goes and gets them and brings them back and along the way brings all of the the booty, all the gold, all the goods that they had taken as well. And as they return, they meet this Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem and the priest of God, because Abraham offers a sacrifice and gives him a tithe. And so, well, traditionally, we don't see the office of king and priests together in one person. In fact, Saul, remember, Saul in particular was told that's a no-no. I have my prophets and my priests. You are a king. To obey is better than sacrifice. But this Old Testament, this, this Melchizedek sets up this type of who the Messiah is going to be. He's going to be a priestly king. Or a king who has, who officiates as the priest as well. And Christ fulfills that. He fulfills 
the messianic promises in Psalm 2, and he fulfills the priestly proclamations in Psalm 110 together in one person. And so he is begotten, not made, and he is a priest forever. He is one who is here to serve the people, not to just lead them and lord over them as a king. He is, in truth, the mediator between God and man. And with that foundation laid, then in the verses 5 and 6, we move on to the third criteria, in that he should be one who... Actually, the third criteria is that he's doing gifts and offerings as a priest. The fourth is that he is going to suffer. What does it say? He who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear. Now I would think, as you, if, you're, if you're a student of history and scripture, probably two events in particular will come to mind as we think about a reference to praying vehemently. I would say probably the first one is the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Christ, knowing which would come upon him, prayed so earnestly that sweat drops like blood came down his face. And I would also assume that his 40 days in the wilderness, there was much prayer, vehement prayer that took place there as well. But from our, even from our reading this morning, when Christ was asked, hey, these guys want to talk to you. He was already in a sense of, right? He kind of said it in a tongue-in-cheek, but what am I going to ask them? Am I ask the Father to have this pass me? I mean, he's already working through this sense. This was something that weighed heavily on him, especially in his last hours in what we call the Passion Week, right? Coming up in another week. He was one who truly suffered. We can't imagine that he went through 40 days in the wilderness and not be hungry, not be tempted, right? What were the temptations that were genuinely offered to him by the deceiver, by Satan himself? And he had to resist them, not because he had some divine iron will that prevented that, but because he trusted and had belief in God's word. Right? How did he answer those temptations? By true application of God's word. Well, the deceiver was trying to twist it to bring about his own. His own lesson. And there in the garden, as, he, as the last moments are coming. He, he, I'm sure, has seen other crucifixions. It was a common practice. He understood all the pain and agony. But the greatest pain and agony was that of being forgotten. Being, having the wrath of God placed upon him. And throughout his lifetime, again, you get glimpses as people wanted to kill him. As the Pharisees, as the leaders sought to kill him. He had been betrayed by one of his closest disciples. Christ is one 
who really suffer. He's a real human being. He's been called to serve humanity. He has the mind of a servant. He offers gifts of sacrifice and the greatest sacrifice, that of his own life. And he is one who suffered. He prays for relief. And this is interesting. The writer of the Hebrew says, his prayer was heard. He prayed and his prayer was heard. So he suffered. Mind blown again, right? What, what's supposed to happen when our prayers are heard? Suffering is removed. An easy path is opened up. Right? That, that's what happens when we pray. I get my way when I pray. When my prayer is heard, doors open. When my prayer is heard, life becomes good. When my prayer is heard, when God hears my prayer, everything works out for the good. And all of those are true, except that's our interpretation, right? It's like standing, four, four different people standing at an intersection and watching an accident. They all have their different perspective on it. And really, that's what happens as we come to God's Word. But God's perspective is, you're going to suffer. Guarantee. I'm going to answer your prayer, and you're going to suffer. Like, whoa, that's a tough one. Why would he do that? Because, what does it say in verse 8? In his suffering, he learned obedience. Christ in his humanity had to learn obedience. Right? Remember what the characteristic of Christ as a young man? He grew in stature and wisdom and in favor with men. He, Christ grew just like any other human being teenage boy did he had all the same ilks he had all the same uh, distractions he had all the same temptations but by God's spirit he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with men man does that give us hope for our own kids (laughs) all things are possible All things are possible with Christ. But Christ in particular, being a human, being chosen to serve, being one who suffered, learned that obedience. And through that obedience was exalted by God in verse 9. Having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He is the perfect priest. He is sanctified, set apart by God to serve as the high priest. And if you go back to Exodus 28, when they they established the first priest, that was a complicated process. All the special clothing that this priest had to have and all the special rituals they had to go through to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be holy, because God is holy, They were set apart to do this work of service. And so they had their special tunic. They had their special robe. They had the ephod. They had the breastplate that was glorious. They had a special turban. They had a special sash that they wrapped around them. 
All, and all of these things, they couldn't just go down to the local Goodwill shop and buy something. It had to be intricately made, sewn together, woven together in a special fashion. And Christ was clothed in that way. He was set apart as one who perfectly met the demands of a holy and just God. He's the one alone who is holy because God is holy. And He is holy because He is God. And because of that, the great promise, the pinnacle of this whole passage, He is the author of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Hallelujah! There is a real salvation that is available because Christ is a high priest. And without him, there is no salvation. And so what does this mean for us? It's true. He is the high priest who sympathizes with our weakness and we can boldly go to the throne of God. He has met all the criteria. He's a human being. He's been selected out of the, to serve the human beings. He serves them by giving gifts and offerings. He has suffered and he's been appointed by God. So first of all, I think, I think this gives us great encouragement to go and fulfill the Great Commission. Especially to the Jews and the Old Testament uh, experts and to maybe those of the Quran who are still looking for the Messiah. This is the evidence that was given to show that Christ is the priest that's been promised. And this is a message that we can take with great courage and boldness to a world that's still looking for a Savior. I think secondly, we have to remember that this is not about our own glory in our own agenda, right? What is the chief end of man but to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? Is that what my Monday morning is all about? Is that what my hump day Wednesday is all about? Is that what my weekend is all about? Or do we follow the traditions of men that I hate Mondays and I can't, and we finally made it halfway through the week and I live for the weekend? Every day is a day where Christ is the high priest and our eternal salvation is secure in Him. And we can proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of men. And no matter what vocation He has called me to do, I will work unto the Lord and watch Him exalt me in it. And I will not worry about what man can do to me. He can throw me in fiery furnaces. He can put me in dens. He can put me in prisons. But if God wants me to be second command in Egypt, I will be there. If he wants me to be the father of all nations, that will happen. If he wants me to sit in a prison and sing songs to, so a, a Philippian jailer will be saved, so be it. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. And we can trust in him for our daily life, not just for our eternal salvation. That being said, we have to be reminded again, suffering is to be expected. That is a promise of following Christ. 
If we are expecting a life of, of, of following Christ, a life as a Christian, never to have any challenges, we are following the wrong Christ. It is guaranteed in everything that Christ taught, everything that Paul taught, all that the disciples taught. Scripture is replete with, if we are followers of Christ, we will suffer. Because the world hates Christ, they will hate those who follow him. Now please, as Peter warns, don't go out and create your own problems. We tend to do that. We mix things up, and if we get in trouble for that, so be it, and we take our just desserts. But if we are struggling and suffering for the cause of Christ because we are doing what God wants us to do, then we can rejoice for where he has us because in divine love, if there were a better place for us to be right now, God would have us there. He loves us that much. He is a father who loves his children, so he's going to discipline his children so that he establishes faith and patience and obedience. And he will exalt those who obey him. So, we must obey God's word. Even though if it doesn't jive with what we're thinking or what the world is teaching, God's word stands as something that needs to be obeyed. It is the evidence that God's spirit is working in us. We're producing fruit. We are obeying God's word joyfully. Oh, that's a tough one. Boy, as a stubborn Dutchman, I struggle with that one, that joy part. But God's spirit brings joy. Certainly not giddiness and always happy celebration, but a contentment that God is keeping his promises and he will provide. And finally, as we should not glorify ourselves, we should serve one another. We, sh- we expect to suffer by obeying God's word. We need to understand that this is true whether we believe it or not. God's word does not depend on our belief. The, this is the truth. And, Paul, and, and the author of the Hebrews kind of assumes that because though it's not part of our passage, if you look at verse 11, he says there's so much that can be said. This is a very complicated issue. There's much we have to say and it's hard to explain why you have become dull in hearing. That, that word dull is kind of lazy, sluggish, not well prepared. May we be warned in the same way that while these are hard words and difficult things to put into practice, they are true. And we must have ears to hear and a spirit to go forth because they are true. Don't, don't be lazy. Don't have dull hearing in these matters because we do have a great high priest who knows our weaknesses and through whom we can boldly go to the throne of God. May your hearts be encouraged and may God's spirit give us ears to hear and eyes to see this truth today in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant that your people, grant your people grace to love what you have commanded and desire what you have promised. That among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys 
are to be found through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. And we pray as our Lord taught us. John records Jesus' words in uh, John 14 and 16. He says, Truly, truly I say to you, he who believes me, the works I do, he will also, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. It's good that I go away. When we're in the midst of change, it can seem like nothing is stable. Like everything's in flux, all at the same time. It's impossible to keep the world from spinning. Some of us are in the midst of change now. Uncertainties with our work, our aging parents, there's new birth, there's graduations, there's our own infirmities. And we're all anticipating how and when God will provide a pastor for us. Despite all these, we remain sons and daughters of the Father. Jesus will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. However, changes are not nothing, but they aren't a reason for fear or regret. God created a world of change. Jesus said in these words, very good. He said, it's good that I go away. Once Jesus leaves, the disciples will do greater things than when he was present. Now Jesus' departure was unique, it's different. But the disciples' greater works came from the Spirit whom Jesus sent, who he sent, filled with resurrection power. Yet Jesus' words apply to all changes. By faith in Jesus, we trust him for our circumstances in the midst of change. So it's in the midst of change that we come to this table. It's a sign of permanence because it's a weekly reassurance that Jesus is with us to the end of the age. It's also an encouragement that in the midst of change, because of it, it reminds us that Jesus left so that by his spirit we can do greater works. Come, welcome to the table that Christ has established for us. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.